on today's episode. I furiously believe in building in public. And that doesn't mean give away everything, keep the secret sauce, but it does mean the old way of building companies up until the 20th century was have an idea, make a business plan, maybe get some money, sell the product, sue sales, do marketing. If you want to do any kind of advertising, you do it on billboards or TV or radio. Right. Cool. Totally worked for a long time. Now in the 21st century, like that script has been entirely flipped. So now it's, if you have an audience, and this was somewhat true in the 20th century, if you have an audience, you can sell them kind of anything. And this is why you see so many people trying to get huge audiences on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and everywhere else. And then they monetize those things. Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. How do you do something crazy? In fact, how do you do something that is so crazy and so big that the people who started it can't continue it on? Meet Tyler Hayes. Tyler is the founder and CEO of Atomic Limbs. And I will tell you, like, I was inspired by this guy seeing him on Twitter so much so that I reached out and to say, could we have a conversation? Could I learn from you a little bit? Tyler is attacking one of the biggest problems that he's seen is the way to create bionic limbs so that people who have limb amputations can live a normal life. But not only is Tyler doing something crazy, he's doing something that people said he shouldn't. He's not a technical individual who's gone deep in the idea of robotics and bionics. He's not someone who's had a long career in the medical field, and yet he found a technology that he thought could help people. And not only did he attack it through his company, Atomic Limbs, he also has let all of us come along for the ride. Tyler has funded this company by opening it up to allow people to participate. One of the early crowdfunding style equity companies out there. Uh, and he let me participate. I spent a little bit of money to be a part of this uh, and I feel good doing it. Why did I bring him on? Well, because I think it's so powerful to learn how today's creators can create something bigger by not going alone, by bringing other people in. Now, it certainly creates challenges and there's issues and obstacles. You have to communicate differently. But as Tyler said, this has been one of the most meaningful experiences of his life and he thinks he has a shot to do something huge. You'll dive in and hear a lot about his psyche, how he thinks about it, and how he tries to create community around it. For anyone who's creating a book, a YouTube channel, or a company, Today's people are not just about so being customers, they could be part of this too. Enjoy the conversation. It's instructive for me and anyone who's thinking, how can I build a community around my creation? Tyler Hayes, everyone. In 2004, DARPA started funding a program called Revolutionizing Prosthetics. The goal was to build a robotic hand that could completely restore arm function for amputees returning from war. And this is needed because most prosthetics require you to do things like move the thumb and touch the button on the back of the hand and just use specific grips. It's so bad that nearly 40% of amputees just don't even use a prosthetic. And so Johns Hopkins took this funding from DARPA, which was nearly $120 million in total, and went through prototype after prototype until until they could control individual fingers. And instead of clicking a button, you wear a band around your muscles, which then senses neural activity in your muscles and converts it into hand movements. Now, sadly, DARPA stopped funding this a few years ago, so the technology was in danger of being left in the lab. But luckily, my friend Tyler had just sold his startup to Amazon for $25 million. What did you do after you sold your first yeah, startup? So the day after the sale, I literally got on a plane to Johns Hopkins to attack and bring it back to land. And so now, just like Elon with Tesla, we're bringing our back to market near human functionality and 100 times more sensors than ever before. That's awesome. In 2004, DARPA started funding a program called 
All right. Perfect timing. I, like the, it literally, we get you uh, just showing up right as we're, as we were doing this here, Tyler. So I'm glad to, uh, to have you on here and thank you so much for, for joining us. I was actually just sharing with everyone. This was the video that actually prompted me to reach out to you and say, Hey, what you're doing is really cool. I'd love to basically have you come in and meet some interesting people and share a little about your story. So thank you so much for agreeing to hang out with us. I appreciate it. Yeah. E easy. It was an easy. Yes. Like first day back from work after new year's. Yeah. Of course <laughs> I'm going to do that. <laughs> it's awesome. It's awesome. This is super cool. I guess what I would love to just maybe start with a little bit here. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about your story is you described the story of Elon Musk and I like Elon Musk and Tesla. What's interesting is like you're working on something that's a little crazy. You don't have 50 years of experience. And yet here you are at the forefront of, as you described it, kind of human body 2.0. I would love for us, for you to maybe share a little bit with folks about your journey to get to this point and how you have been building up this expertise over time to be able to do something so ambitious that I think I saw, I read somewhere that you described this as your, like, your life's work. How do you get to this point where you feel like you can do something so ambitious like this? And, and kind of what was the journey from, I was preparing Tyler the Techie when you were in high school to uh, here we are now working yeah. on bionic limbs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's a lot for sure. The Tyler, the techie thing. Holy crap. I can't believe you found that. Anyway, I, know, listen, yeah. I go deep on these so, deep cuts here. Evidently. Yeah. I mean, I guess basically the extremely long story short, and that starts with Tyler, the techie, I'm 34 years old now. When I was a kid, I loved building computers and I was super into this quantified self movement, which is all around trying to live forever or live right. better. And, and so as a hobby that just morphed into becoming my like full-time interests as I got older. And so then I started companies and I studied neuroscience when I was in, in school. I actually, <clears throat> I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. Mm. That was the job that I thought I was going to do the rest of my life. Like, everyone's like, I'm going to be a firefighter. Or I'm going to be a police officer or something. I was like, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. I'm going to open up skulls. I'm going to pull <laughs> brain out. I'm going to put brain in. And then I'll never forget. I, I actually was shadowing three neurosurgeons one day, like finishing out my schooling. And, uh, and I was like, I got done at the end of the day and I was like, this is the best day ever. They were like, this was so much fun. And I was like, so what do we do next? And they were like, under no circumstances, should you become a neurosurgeon? And uh, <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Oh my God, why not? And they go, look, here's the deal. You're just, you're way too ADHD for this. Really? You're going to do 15 years of school. Yeah. And honestly, they were dead on. It was huh. super. And they were just like 15 years of reading books. It's it. It's just books. You're going to die doing that. <laughs> so I sold everything. I was running a PC repair business on the side, Tyler, the techie at the time, yeah. like an up and comer competitor to geek squad yeah. and sold that, sold my car, sold my girlfriend, everything. I moved out from Minnesota to San Francisco about 10 years ago and then joined a rocket ship startup when I came out here called yeah. Disgust. And then I was early there right after they got out of Y Combinator and then left, started my first startup, which was in healthcare called Prime, mm -hmm. which helped people aggregate their medical record. We partnered with 23andMe and UCSF and stuff to help people get their medical data. And then uh, more notoriously, the past several years before Adam Limbs was co-founder of Bebo, which is actually the same Bebo that used to be a social network a long time ago. That's right. We originally got bought by AOL for a billion dollars, and then we bought it back for a million dollars. So it was like the greatest business deal of all time. <laughs> and, then, and then we sold it again to Amazon a couple of years ago. And then, yeah, last couple of years have been all around Adam Limbs. I don't want to keep rambling, but I'll just say this. Yeah. Uh, Adam Limbs absolutely is my passion. Like, I want to live yeah. forever. I want to give people the ability to live forever, to cure death. I think it is like the biggest problem facing humanity. Not to say that other problems aren't very legitimate too. I'm also huge in how I work here in San Francisco with a number of homelessness organizations and justice reform too. Like these, there's very important things in the world. But to me, it's like everyone dies. 
that's a massive loss of creativity and humanity and productivity. And so anyway, I think it's like the best thing that we can help solve is disability and death and help people live like as long as they want, as healthy as they want, basically. I don't think know if we it's made just me, by the way, but for some reason I couldn't hear him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think we lost him, man. Eric, we don't <laughs> hear you. Yeah, we can, we can hear you fine. Okay. I feel like, yeah, Eric's probably just tapped out. Now, can you hear me now? There we go. Yeah. Perfect. Sorry. Weirdness. I was saying we had, we had David Sinclair come and join us. He is a Harvard expert on aging. He wrote the book Lifespan, and he said something that was really struck me. He said, Someday our grandkids will look back and feel sorry for us on how short our lifespan was. <laughs> and I thought it's a really, it's an interesting way to think about it, for sure. I want to go back a little bit. One of the things I think is so interesting, too, about your trajectory is you've been working in a field that oftentimes people, as you said, spend 15 years reading, and yet you've shortchanged that. You have this like kind of ability to learn quickly and things like that. What are some of the things, and especially one of the things that I think authors in this program often ask about is, how do I skip steps? Because you know, skip steps to be playing what you're doing here. What's your sort of strategy to learn and how are you so effective at it? I think there's probably two things that are part of that. One is in, inside of Adam Limbs and Bebo and everywhere else that every other one of companies I've been a part of, we've always just basically said everyone's a problem solver inside the organization. So whether it's me as CEO or it's someone who works in design support, mechatronics, whatever else, you're a problem solver first. And so the point of that is just to say, focus is the ultimate weapon that a startup has all the way up to Apple is the biggest startup in the world. Like they have the same focus, right? You, you, every distraction that enters into the workforce into your day is ultimately the thing that like why most things take a long time. Mm -hmm. Most things don't actually take that long. Like we're building robotic arms and it's like a two to three year process, right? Like after the original initial R&D, it doesn't take 10 years to do this. But second, I think that hacks and cheat codes are like my favorite way to think about how to get stuff mm -hmm. done for sure. Yeah. We have a lot of institutional frameworks inside of Adam Limbs for all these cheat codes we can use. Um, so one of them is we have this thing called like the eight, the 2080 rule, which is if like you, you're never allowed to go off and do something on your own completely and then just come back and deliver. Oh, here is the new robotic design or here mm -hmm. is the new AI algorithm. You have to basically get to 20%, then come back to everyone and say, hey, I got about 20% in. What do you think so far? And as the saying goes, like an inch now is a mile later. If you were on this path and you needed to be on this path, like we just stopped you from going down the wrong path until you got to the finish line hmm. and then you can deviate and come back. And I think that in a company, that's largely like how you stay focused and use these cheat codes to make things compressed in time scales so you can get a year's work of worth done in a month or a week. I think the other one that we have, another framework we have, which is probably my favorite, is one hour, one day, one week, which is just, okay, hey, someone says, hey, I think that I could, I think I could dramatically improve the weight of the arm. Okay, well, how long is that going to take? Oh, I think it'll probably take about a month. Okay, maybe it will. What could you do in a week? What could you do in a day and in an hour? And then you inevitably always find the bare minimum that will actually get you to the finish line from that. Whereas most people, we know that the natural way that people work is attention is like gas in a vacuum. Any, yeah. any amount of time you give someone, they will find a way to fill up all that time to get yeah. that done. So yeah. there's a bunch of random things there, but we no, it's actually extremely core to us. Yeah. We talk about Parkinson's law a lot, like work expands to fill the time allotted, which I think is, Always. you know, and especially, and again, I think what's interesting about whatever project it is, whether it's writing a book or whether it's doing something like trying to give people amputees the ability to feel, we can take forever. And I think you 
with this concept here is you got the opportunity to take this out of taking some of these this, these learnings based on research done elsewhere into it and commercialize it. What is that process like? Because I think we've seen that with things like SpaceX. We're seeing it with other kind of like concepts here that are these big problems that are now being commercialized. Has there been pushback from people saying, hey, this is something that governments do versus companies? How have you navigated that? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, there's constant pushback. <laughs> I think that we get a lot of, we, we don't get as much cultural pushback as I would have expected, which yeah. would be like, hey, there's bigger problems than solving death. What we do get is a lot of, even in Silicon Valley, I guess I could talk about this publicly, but this is, I'll let you in on a little secret here. Like in Silicon Valley, there's these startups and venture capitalists who invest in those startups. Right. And I think what most people think about when they think about venture capitalists as investing in startups is, oh, they're funding Uber and Google and PayPal and everything else. The reality is that most startup investors, and when I say most, I'm like 90 to 95%, not 50%, are investing in like software, financial software, enterprise software, Slack. Robin Hood, stuff like that. And they are almost allergic to doing this like hard tech, emerging tech moonshot mm. stuff. Yep. And I cannot tell you how many venture capitalists have looked at what we've done. <laughs> and their takeaway is, nah, like not for us, but that's how we all think about Silicon Valley. And yeah. so the real truth is that we have about a 50-50 funding strategy, which is like 50% of our funding, for example, comes from the government through all sorts of grants, which is not normal for startups. Right. At least that's how people don't think of it. And then the other 50% comes from private investors, whether that's mm -hmm. inv angels, VCs, family offices, whoever. Yeah. And people don't realize that that's actually like Elon Musk is a direct product of that. You know, we celebrate him, but he's like oh, yeah. a master at funding and SpaceX and Tesla and SolarCity are all massive government commercialization enterprises where they got good <laughs> at that simple act. Yeah, Tesla and SpaceX have both taken on some of the largest government loans and grants of all time. And then famously, Tesla obviously paid theirs back early. And then that was a huge deal. They were like the first who had paid theirs back early in like decades or something. Yeah. But either way, yeah, I think I, I would love to see five years from now more startups taking a more diverse funding mm -hmm. approach to these things. And then also just working with more of these institutions. Johns Hopkins, the Applied Physics Lab at Johns Hopkins, where our arm was initially researched and developed, they have 400 other projects like this there right. in the applied physics lab and nobody knows about them yeah. you want to know like one of the biggest secrets actually of these kind of things speaking of secrets i'll never forget the first day i walked through the applied physics lab at johns hopkins and i swear to god it was like walking through a marvel supervillain lair it was like <laughs> there's like an exoskeleton there's a robotic arm there's like a human hawk costume that can fly and like perch. It was insane. It was crazy. The stuff that I was seeing in there. And I was just like, why is this all just stuck here? Yeah. And it's because there's not really a lot of conversation between the academic world that does this stuff and the capital capitalistic world, basically. And how did you get into that? Because again, I think that's another thing is like, you did the work to go out and learn these things. It wasn't something that like someone, you know, like how do you go find these things if you're trying to learn and become smart about it? I think I just have a, a heavy bias towards action. <laughs> it's one of the things I've realized as I've gotten older. Is maybe that's something that not everyone does as much. So I just cold called the Johns Hopkins. Cool. Like I literally didn't even know. So basically here's the story. The arm that we're making, when it was in R&D there, I was myself in angel investing in longevity companies. And my thesis was basically, there's a lot of people doing this like reverse aging through pills and therapies and stuff. And my thesis was like, 
uh, I think we just need to rebuild the human body. Like hmm. even if someone gives you a pill and it stops your aging, you're still stuck in a meat sack. Yeah. Like you can still be damaged or killed. That seems flawed. Okay. So <laughs> what if we replace the human body? Okay. So then I started looking at companies and there weren't a whole lot of companies to invest in. I started talking to friends. They didn't know anything. And then I saw this video on YouTube of this arm four years ago or whatever at hmm. Hopkins. And I was like, this is crazy. So I literally went to the, this is, these are the kind of things that when you hear them later, they sound really dumb. Yeah. But I literally went to johnshopkins.edu or whatever. And I just found a phone number and just cold called it. I was like, <laughs> hey, I saw this video. Who do I talk to? And then I got transferred like three different departments. And then finally ended up talking to what turned out was their tech transfer office, <sighs> which if people don't know about this, there's an entire department at all yeah. these big universities whose sole responsibility is to move that mm-hmm. out, that tech out of the university. And I just literally tried to help them find a team to commercialize it because it turned out they didn't have anyone commercializing this technology uh-huh. and they had a few false starts. And so then when we sold Bebo, I, th- I guess I said in the video that you were watching at the yeah. beginning, but like I literally just the next day flew to Hopkins. Yeah. was like, uh, hey, I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we sort so, of fell in love and got married. You just went for it. So, so you also have taken an interesting strategy with this. And as someone who's been in the entrepreneurial space for a while, not everyone, when they think about building something of this ambitious, they oftentimes just think that not everyone on the call will know it called stealth. And stealth is this concept basically that says you will go and not tell anyone what you're doing here. You're going to basically do this quietly. But you've been more open about it here. Again, I think even in the fundraising strategy, right? One of the things that when I saw this one, the first thing I did is I, I invested through this WeFunder idea here and then said, hey, would you come and talk here? So why have you decided to be open about it, number one? And then the second thing I want to talk a little bit about your strategy to involve the community in it, because I think that's been a really interesting strategy to see that may be different than other entrepreneurs think about. Yeah, I definitely think that's not really done a whole lot by a lot mm-hmm. of startup entrepreneurs. I guess I would say I furiously believe in building in public. And that doesn't mean give away everything, keep the secret sauce, but it does mean the old way of building companies up until the 20th century was have an idea, make a business plan, maybe get some money, sell the product, sue sales, do marketing. If you want to do any kind of advertising, you do it on billboards or TV or radio. Cool. Totally worked for a long time. Now in the 21st century, like that script has been entirely flipped. So now it's, if you have an audience, and this was somewhat true in the 20th century, if you have an audience, you can sell them kind of anything. And this is why you see so many people trying to get huge audiences on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and everywhere else. And then they monetize those things. One of my co-founders from Bebo, Sean, he like started this podcast called My First Million. And he got 100,000 listeners or something like that. And now he's got, he turned those 100,000 listeners into a two and a half million dollar rolling fund that he started. And now he's investing money. He just did that because he had an audience. So for us, we know that the, there's value in having an audience. So when you build in public, it says to people, hey, I'm just waving a giant pink flag, right? <laughs> we're over here. If right. you like what we're doing, come over this way. Yeah. Right. And so then people rally to our cause. I will say one thing, by the way, real quick, like with this public funding thing, for example, like some of the pe- some people asked us really early on, they're like, is this how you're funding your company? It's like, no, like this is not the only way we're funding our company. But uh, but basically, we just had a ton of friends and fans who were like, I want to invest. Yeah. We realized it was going to be too late soon for them to enjoy the financial upside. So we did mm-hmm. it. But at the same time, I'll also say in doing it, you know, we've raised almost a million dollars publicly yeah. just through that one campaign now. And that was way more than I expected. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. And so I was like, okay, maybe there's actually a new thing here. So I will say that behind the scenes, I'm actually talking to 
some of these different platforms like WeFunder and some of the others, as well as some of the companies I've invested in. And I'm interested in putting together a playbook for this stuff because I think that accessibility to capital, if you're a startup founder, is actually still really hard. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are like, oh, there's so much capital. You can just go get it. No, it's actually like a ton of barriers. Like minorities have a really hard time getting access to it. If you're not in the Bay Area, you can't get access to it. I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff with the public funding stuff there, but it's easy for me to ramble about it. That's great, actually. It's really interesting here. One of the things that with the authors here is that most of them will go out and do some kind of a pre-sale campaign where they'll use their book in that same way. They use platforms like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. Oh, sure. Same sort of thing because the audience, that's why I thought your story was so interesting. I was like, some people were like, how does this relate to this book thing? And number one, it's just interesting that you're an interesting dude, but also I think a lot of the things you're doing here, whether it's a startup bionic arms or a startup of your ideas, I think they're the same sort of things out there in the world today. Yeah. I will say that I actually, one of the very first um, internships I ever had, or not even internship, paid jobs was <laughs> a book editor for uh, for Wiley. I did some editing. Yeah. So full circle. This is awesome. This is awesome. So first off, you've been super gracious here. I, I want to make sure to be respectful because you do have to like make the world a better place and things like that. <laughs> so <in terms> of, <laughs> All good. In terms of some things here a little bit for folks, as people are thinking about being at the bleeding edge, one of the things that I thought was so interesting here is about the story. And, and I think you guys have captured a lot of how you tell stories, even partnering with in your pitch video, you talk about we're working with veterans first. How have you become a better storyteller? And how do you think about telling stories that move people to raise almost a million dollars from the consumer market is hard to do. What's your tips and tricks that you use? That's a good question. (laughs) I only ask good ones. Deep cuts here. (laughs) She just renamed this whole thing you're doing to deep cuts. I think if I'm honest, I think a few things gave me the edge that I have now. And I don't know that I would have planned this out this way, but they did. One was, I just blogged every day for almost 10 years. And I stopped that a few years ago. And it iterated a lot over time, but I've done a lot of writing in my life. Mm -hmm. And I definitely really strongly believe that good thinking and good reading and good writing and all those are just directly linked with each other. So like the more you read, the better you're going to think. The more you think, the better you're going to write. The more you write, the better you're going to think and read. All these things reinforce each other. I uh, Having to write every day forced me to be extremely clear with my thinking Hmm. so that I could convey it through words. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't directly related when I first started to putting together pitch decks for investors or business plans or pitches, but it absolutely lent to a much more clear sense of concision and specificity around the things that I wanted to express. Also, just like literal tips and tricks, I think one, again, bias towards action. Like, I don't think this is like a foreign concept to most people, but if you need to write a book, start writing the book. If you need to start a company, (laughs) start the company. And the act of basically moving forward is the thing that continues to deliver progress. I'm a huge believer. Also, I would say like a big tip is motion, not direction. So Mm -hmm. if you're on an island in the middle of the ocean and you don't know how to get back to your main main digs, how do you do that? A lot of people would be like, I'm going to look around and I'm just going to look out in the ocean and you're not going to see anything. You're on an island. So yeah. what you need to do is just press out. And then as you start taking the, those steps into the ocean, you will start to see more, but you yeah. won't have ever seen those things if you stayed on the island. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. That's, and I think in some ways, look at you now, right? Like in some ways it was that kind of pick up the phone or kind of go this way and happens. And I think a lot of times people are like, there's a lot of planning that happens in particular when you're doing something big. And in some ways you kind of just have to jump yeah. off the island and hold your nose. not. <laughs> At least it was a good swim. Get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Everyone comes from a different place. Yeah. And we learn these things as we get older. But I definitely think that life is extremely short. It's like painfully short. 
And so for me, I would say that is also a cheat code for me. Like it's just a constant reminder. I I did the math when I was very young on how many days you have to live. And when you turn 22, you have about 12,000 waking days left in your life. When you turn 30, you have about 10,000 waking days left. So a waking day would be like 16 hours pulled and then pull eight from the next day because you're sleeping. But 10,000 waking days, you turn 30, that rolls over to the four digits, 9,999. And that's, that to me, when I did that, I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Mm. If I don't do it today in 40 years, I'm going to be extremely angry at myself for not having done it today. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that kind of takes my breath away. Like, I gotta get going here. We got hurry. We got work to do. So one of those questions, we do something fun. We always do something fun where we have, we do a group photo and you get to decide what we do on it. So just keep that in the back of your mind here, what you're going to have us memorialize. But the last question for you a little bit is, I think a lot of people today have this idea of they want to do something meaningful and mission. And you talked about it, like, 10,000 days, 12,000 days, you want to do those things. Looking back to those sort of early moments in your early 20s, when you make this leap to go do something important, what is the thing that sort of struck you as this, here's, I'm going to make that thing. And how do, I'm sure people come to you all the time. How do I do something meaningful? And I know everyone wants to come work for you guys now. What are some of the things you tell people to do to find that meaning and to go do something meaningful to themselves? To be perfectly honest, I think that I actually had a, uh, I had to have a breakdown to even get to that point. I remember when I was in my, in my early twenties, I was really concerned that I wasn't going to be able to do something meaningful with my life. And I remember actually sitting in my parents' house with my parents of all people. And I shared it with them. And for whatever reason, I just, I like broke and started crying and was like, I just don't know. Like, how do I figure out what's going to be meaningful and fundamental? And no one had any answers. <laughs> and I literally had to just go and figure it out and figure out what was meaningful to me. And now the way I think about it is I choose to only put my time into what I call the meaningful fundamentals. Hmm. So those are things that like if the Universal Declaration of Human Rights from 1948, it said guarantees educate access to education and healthcare and blah, blah, blah. To me, that's that's what I'm talking about. It's, hey, I think that making toys is great. Let's keep doing that. But for right now, there's like very clear problems that still exist with poverty and access to shelter and homelessness and justice reform and education and healthcare. And it's not just in the US, it's all over the world. And so I'm just going to keep working on that, like basically get my house in order before I go and try to build another house. And the house just happened to be planet Earth. So I think for me, that's how I think about it. But I will say that everyone has a very different sense of what is meaningful. And I wouldn't take, I wouldn't suggest anyone redefine it. If it's meaningful to you, it's meaningful. And if that's making a FinTech product, great. If it's writing a book, great. If it's just becoming a sculptor for the next 20 years and not knowing where your next paycheck has come from, great. 